0: Hello and welcome to Rastlin Memories on Pioneer 90.1 KSRQ. You can check us out uh, live and in the moment at RadioNorthland.org and you can also find a link to our SoundCloud page there where we can take you through over 10 years of wrestling Memories. Oh, you can find us too uh, live and in the moment on TuneIn. Hey, thank you for tuning in. I'm Glenn Broggett along with my co-host way down there deep in the heart of Texas, Mr. Mike McCurdy. And Mike, the grizzled vet, uh, it's getting to be the end of summer. Uh, You know, we always usually open up with a little talk about the weather. So how you been doing down there deep in the heart of Texas in the the not-the-mobile studio? Or are you in the mobile studio?
1: I have no mobile studio anymore. I have my state-of-the-art indoor studio now, which I love uh, in my air-conditioned apartment. And luckily now we are entering the end of the summer months, thank God. And (laughs) it is about 88 degrees uh, for the high today, so... And 88 degrees makes a big difference when you've been living in 105 for the last two months.
0: Yeah, I bet that's a bit of a cooling period there for you. I mean, it's been all right up here. I mean, it's been weather's been pretty reasonable all summer. I mean, a couple not this past weekend, but the weekend before, I was up in Winnipeg and the weather was just perfect to be outside to enjoy music. So, yeah, I get to, you know, sitting outside on a Sunday night listening to Cheap Trick ain't so bad, especially when the weather's working for you.
1: I would like to listen to Cheap Trick. It looks like you were having. A, it looked like you had a fun show that you were going to. So I was a little jealous. But you go to all those concerts, man. I do I don't go to nothing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, see the difference between you and you and I, of course, is uh you know you got the kids that's the thing. My wife and I don't have kids, so that kind of makes things a little easier. We can wiggle around and get to these shows and go do some traveling and you know we 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 get to pick our shots, we have a better chance of picking our shots, but when you pick your shot, I bet you know you definitely savor every moment of it
1: I do, and unfortunately, another problem around here is a lot of the concerts that come to my area are the big stadium shows. Like, we just had Metallica here for that two-night oh, sure. weekend thing they were doing, and those tickets are just expensive. I mean, we had Taylor Swift, obviously, you know, she was here. And, well, yeah, you, you may
2: have to give know, up a kidney for Taylor, Taylor Swift. For yeah, Taylor Swift's yes, a yes. we, we
1: get the big ticket. We get the big ticket concerts around here. We don't get the little, you know, oh, this guy, you know, something, but... Don't you I have did an- hear Boy George is coming? Boy George and Culture Club is coming with their like 80s tour thing. So I might go to check that out just because I was a Culture Club fan.
0: Well, there was a hot, they had a hot run there might for a while. Kind of fun to see. Color, uh Kissing to be Clever and Color by Numbers, those two albums, you go back and look at their sales, I mean, those guys you know, moved a lot, a lot of units there, and a lot of big hits, and a lot of catchy hits, too, whether we like it or not, there's whether it's an earworm or something we love to hear, uh, yeah, Culture Club, I think that would be kind of an interesting event, almost, I had a chance to see them when I was in Denver a few years ago, but... The wife and I were, I think we ended up going to do something else. So, oh, the talk of music. uh, Yeah, I mean, our guest today, we can talk wrestling and we can talk music, which is so cool because I've got a big, uh, big fall season of concerts coming up. So it's kind of fun that I can share both of my loves here today and Mike. You did the kind kind task of booking this gentleman who is very busy and has a great podcast. I have it every week every Friday it's part of my uh, my other job. it's part of my work rotation and I enjoy uh, I've enjoyed every show since I, I knew and was aware that he had a, a podcast on his own. I have heard him do some stuff with John Arezzi previous and of course I've checked out his stuff uh, in PWI back in the day but Mike, you got to introduce the man. We've been talking so much about him. We've been talking about everything. How about we get to the man himself?
1: Yes, let's introduce our guest for this week. Um, I found his podcast through you, actually, Glenn. I did not realize that he had a podcast. I went and found it. I have been binge listening to the last 30 oh, it's so good. episodes. Great show. I am really enjoying it. And as you said, I also enjoyed his work with Pro and Illustrated. His, his knowledge and all that in the world of music, I do not know much about that. So I'm looking forward to hearing some of that. I'm, I'm, once again... I get to learn something, so I'm always looking forward to that. Our guest this week on Wrestling Memories, Mr. Bob Smith. Bob, welcome to the show.
2: Glenn, Michael, how are you? Oh, doing good, sir. Doing
0: good. It's so good to have you on. And when I hear you talk, I just I, I'm I'm taking myself back to work and uh, thinking I'm listening to your podcast. I mean, you've done such a good job with this podcast. Uh, what made you decide to finally branch out and, and get into the podcasting? Mean, I know you've done some stuff with John Arezzi and you've worked with others, but to take full ownership and and run with it on your you know having yourself at the front of things with the outdated wrestling podcast. What was it that made you finally decide to kind of take the bull by the horns? And start doing it on your own, and, and getting it together, and having your your own piece of the podcast. By,
2: <laughs> I am going to come right out and say why I started my own podcast. I got on, fired man. from the other podcast. Fired. Fired.
0: Unbelievable. I, Unbelievable.
2: Yes. A story yes. Here. yes. You, I'm, you, you can break it here. I have alluded to it in the past. Uh, Mister Rizzi decided he wanted to go in a different direction with his show. Uh-huh. For reasons that didn't make sense to me then and still don't. And uh, that was in January after I spent the better part of a year on that show. And I said, well, okay. Good enough. So one show went by without me on a, His show's called The Pro Wrestling Spotlight. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't on one episode in January. And my email box filled up. And my Facebook instant messages filled up with people going, where are you? What happened? What's going on? Mm-hmm. So when I got that kind of response to doing nothing, I said, I better do something. Sure. You know you know what I'm saying?
0: Absolutely. I mean, so, you were still out there, and they still remember you, and they liked what you did on John's show, so that's got to be a little bit of a boost of confidence.
2: Yeah, so what I did was, I did, the light bulb was over my head, and I came up with a plan. The, the title of the show struck me out of the blue, and I had the show... On the well, I I can't call them airwaves because it's podcasting. Mm -hmm. But I had the show up and running in about four days after I said I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. I just Mm -hmm. I learned so much from doing the other show. They said, you know, I can tackle this, so I did. And the next thing I know, it the floodgates open, and this is like the sixth or seventh interview I've done since I started it. People were, you see, the thing is. I spent about six years with PWI, and it just won't let me go. People <laughs> remember it, you know? Like you guys. You, you, you remember that stuff. Uh-huh. So I, so after I shoved that stuff in a drawer in my life for the longest time, I said, why not just go back and reminisce about it? And it has paid off. I mean, I'm having a blast doing that show. I, or this one, I should say. Um, the outdated wrestling hour has... Uh, you know, it's funny, too. When I went to college, I wanted to be in radio. I never got to be on radio. So wait three or four decades, and I'm finally on the modern version of radio.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's like the super modified version of what is perceived as modern airwaves. I mean, with radio being where it's at as far as terrestrially, as as far as, like, you know, the iHearts and all of that of the world, podcasts found that their way in. And for a lot of people, they don't even listen to the the radio airwaves because there really isn't as much to offer anymore because there's these other options too.
2: Right, exactly. And you know what? It's all niche-oriented. And, you know, podcasts Mm -hmm. are kind of like magazines or what's left of the magazine world. In other words, to succeed as a magazine these days, you can't be general interest anymore because there's a thousand places to get that information. So if you look at a newsstand for magazines, it's walking, running, dog world, cat fancy, you know, all niches. You know, it's all little pockets of information you can't get anywhere else. And I think the podcast world, I think, is very similar to that in that the ones that are successful is stuff you don't hear everywhere else. You know Mm. know what I'm saying? It's like general interest is out, but specific interest is in. I don't know how else to put it.
0: Yeah, it's kind of an everything for everyone. You know, you just got to find whatever your, your fancy is these days to, you know, and 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 there's going to be a podcast or there's going to be a theme of somebody else's podcast based on it. There's so many out there. Again, it's, you know, it's become in the last five to 10 years now, as far as me picking out stuff for my own schedule, it's a lot of wheat from chaff. I've listened to a lot of different podcasts and the ones that have stuck, I've I've been loyal and thankfully they have been long running and. To add yours in, into the hat, I mean, is is really great because, like I said, I was a big listener to, to John's show and I enjoyed your part on it. So when yeah, you know, when you were gone for a while, I didn't know what was going on and what kind of a hiatus you were on. But to see that you had resurfaced, I, I immediately started listening to shows because I I found out just a few months into your into your podcasting career and. Uh, again, I ended up uh, getting Mike involved into listening to it as well because I really, truly enjoyed it. I mean, up to your recent episodes, I mean, I love the fact that you do your pro wrestling talk, but you also share with people what's been going on in your life as far as your musical career. Uh, the interview you had with uh, Bobby Blue Bland's son on uh, one of your more recent episodes was fascinating, but it was fascinating in the fact that you were able to link pro wrestling because he had such a deep love for it, and you can definitely tell the way he was talking of him and just rattling off reference points of how much love and just how close together these industries of pro wrestling, sports entertainment, and the music industry, and it's almost like sports entertainment is sort of a bridge between pro sports and music.
2: Yeah, and what I liked about Rod Bland was he he's not shy about it. He loves wrestling. Yeah, and I found out that he loved wrestling and like I said I had an association with BB King and in the past who was really almost like best friends with with Rod's father Bobby Blue Bland and it was like you know I got to get a hold of this guy. So th- through my connections I was able to get a hold of Rod and once we started talking we did you know how podcasts are, you kind of do a pre-interview before you do it Sure After 10 minutes I felt like I knew the guy for 20 years. He knows so much about wrestling. It was crazy. Oh yeah, I mean it was just like boom boom
0: boom and it wasn't just surface stuff. I mean, he was digging beneath. He was getting down in the on these references. I mean, you could just drop a a general pro wrestling reference from whatever decade, but he was he was in it to win it and that's where like it was kind of the fun dynamic of that conversation about how he kind of made comparisons music and wrestling or music and wrestling and kind of uh as far as the tears of the artist like uh, he was comparing his father to bb and all of that i mean Mm -hmm. that that to me was 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 fascinating because it was just such a different avenue of conversation it was beyond the obvious uh if someone was tuning in for a specific pro wrestling sort of thing
2: well you know the podcasts i enjoy are the stuff that's kind of off the beaten path you know, it's like Brian R. Solomon has a podcast. It's fascinating because his guests are from all walks of life. They may not be wrestlers or have mm-hmm. been involved in, you know, the workings of professional wrestling, but, but they may have been associated with it peripherally, but it's still interesting. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. It, it, it's, it's like uh, anybody can give you SummerSlam results, but I, I, I think the, the shows that are kind of, Kind of messy and a little strange are the ones I like. For instance, my next guest is going to be a, a guy I met at a wrestling convention recently called Nick Clark. He's a wrestling artist. Huh. Now, dig that. Yeah. Like he takes the superstars and not so superstars wrestling and does like comic book style art that's impossible for a layman like me to describe. <laughs> but when I saw this stuff, I was fascinated by it. So I had him on the show, and it was like all my other shows. First, we start talking about his art and how he comes up with his, you know, with his schemes and whatnot. And the second half of the show, we veer off into one of the best wrestling conversations I ever had. And that was, that one hasn't even hit yet. So I'm like, I, I think I'm onto something here. Yeah, you know, I, think- we, I could have anybody come on and talk about, let's say, Bulbul Brazil for an hour, you mm-hmm. know. But um, I, I'm looking for different points of view. I, I want to get more women on the show. I, I think women. If if there's one way that professional wrestling has changed since I was a kid is that there's as many female fans as there are male now. There's no question about that.
0: Oh, most most definitely. And you have uh, just recently as well. And uh, as far as your your list of past guests was someone we had on our program. Uh, Joyce Poshtian, who mm-hmm. was, did the ph- great book about her, with her photography and her stories behind going to these AWA wrestling events from the early to mid-1970s all the way up until the end. And even her going to some of these AWA-related stuff like a Kenny J's histiocytosis benefit or hanging out with Nick Bockwinkle at a various thing or Cauliflower Alley. I mean, this was another thing where you really – and I just enjoyed her telling her story on our show as well, just – where wrestling kind of fit in her life and, and how it took off in her conscience and how she ended up getting involved and getting the camera and getting the courage, I mean, let alone uh, getting at ringside for being a man a not a wrestling pro wrestling civilian, but as a female as well. I mean, she was blazing kind of her own ground and in, in territory. Uh, as She was uh, photo- you know, taking all these photos of these great, great AWA stars from past and present. And that book is like one of those. When I got it, it was just a, I couldn't put it down. So it was very cool to not only talk with her, but also having you chat with her as well. Because we, I, got, I got even more perspective from her uh, talking with you.
2: Uh, it's, it, she reminds me uh, how she ingratiated herself with the wrestlers the same way one of my early guests, Terry Sullivan, did. He was just a kid hanging out with some of the wrestlers' wives at, you know, he, she was sitting, he was sitting among the wrestlers' wives at shows. And he had the gumption to get to know a couple of the wrestlers who, and he wanted to be a ring announcer. And he eventually became the, the ring announcer for one of the hottest territories in the country, which is Detroit when the chic was hot. But he, how did he get it? He asked the same way Joyce did. You have to ask somebody before somebody will give you something, you know? So it, it, it is a testament to her stick to and, well, the fact that she wasn't... You know what? She's such a pleasant person, you know? Yeah. I, I think the fact that if you act professionally, you get professional results on the back end. Oh. Same with Terry. You know what I mean? They, they come off as professionals from from the minute they walk in. It doesn't matter that they don't have a degree in this or that or ever worked before. If you don't act like a... a like a Google eyed fan, chances are you will get what you're way eventually. So, if there's any lesson you can learn from people like that, is if you don't ask, you don't get.
0: Oh, for sure, for sure. If there's a, a message to be learned from that. Mike uh, McCurdy, I'm going to bring into the conversation here. Mike, I know you gave the intro and I kind of jumped on and started chatting with Bob, but I'm going to let you come on in and uh, get this, uh, really get this conversation going
1: on right now. I got no problem you jumping in there, Glenn. Uh, I always enjoy listening to the, uh, the conversation. So. I'd like to talk a little bit, though, Bob, about your time. You mentioned, we mentioned, you know, Pro Wrestling Illustrated and you were there for six years. I'd like to talk about, you know, kind of your time with the magazines because as a historian, I have a large collection of the magazines and I still look for them, like, online through the archive sites. But let's talk a little bit about your time with Pro Wrestling Illustrated and some of the other magazines and just kind of how that came about and just kind of some of the highlights of your time with those.
2: Oh, gosh, I'm the
1: luckiest cat on earth. I'm telling you, Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: I ended up with them... Uh, it was a different era my friend and i was working i had been a sports writer and a news writer um i wasn't living in my hometown but i got a job with my hometown paper that was my first journalism and i won a couple of journalism awards the second one was an interview with mike tyson when he was high he was like nineteen, twenty years old when he was you know first becoming a celebrity which won a major uh journalism award in new york state and yeah, about a year later, I decided to move to the New York City region just to, just to you know see if I could make a better living, to be honest with you. So I ended up working for a, a music magazine. It was like an industry book that did stuff like ratings of uh, instrument cables and stuff like that. So I wasn't particularly happy, but I, I was there for a couple of weeks. But I'm looking in the New York Times in an era where the New York Times would have four pages of editorial jobs, if you can believe it. And there was a little two-line ad mixed in there, and it said editor slash writer wanted for sports entertainment pub i said sports entertainment that's wrestling and the next line said send resume clips to box something 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 rvc new york and i said rvc that's rockville center that's pwy so i knew what it was and i knew who they were and i put the tyson clip in a bag and along with all my other best work and awards and i sent it off to them lo and behold i got a phone call and I went in and interviewed in early 1988 and uh, got the job. And in the beginning, I, I worked wrestling and boxing, but I talked my way into doing... Uh, actually, I, I think it was hard for the wrestling area, first and foremost. But they knew I knew Mike Tyson, and that, that led them... You know, I helped them work with Mike a little bit in the beginning. And uh, it just took off from there. Um, London... I would say that I got hired probably about three years after London uh, PWI and the Wrestling and Sub-Wrestling. They they were red hot at the beginning of the expansion years, you know, the WWF expansion. And when I joined, things were cooling down. You know, it was cooling down a lot. And... (laughs) the work was great i really enjoyed it they let me do the ratings um which i love doing um i was the writer of the first 2 pwi 500s in 1991 and 1992 and i did it all by myself
0: thank you for your service bob that's an yeah, undertaking
2: i know it was and it, you, you got to figure guys it was before internet before anything electronic it was all out of my head and what little clips i had and what information we had in the magazines is how I compiled. And I was a voracious tape trader, you know. I think I saw more wrestling than anybody else in the office. I I, I kind of lived it for a while. And it led to, it to something that's lasted all these years later, and I'm still shocked by that. You know, it, it's like it really did make an impact. And I think it saved PWI, to be honest with you, because that, that thing is still look forward to every single year and I'm proud to just have had my you know my little finger in the door for getting that thing started so and I want to give credit for inventing it to Stu Sachs because we were talking around and he said I you know we ratings are so popular in magazines why don't we do a PWI 100 and I'm the fool that said 100 why don't we do 500 he says you want to do it I said sure And I had no idea what a monumental (laughs) undertaking it was going to be. It was really hard to do. But you know what? I think it paid off in terms of fan interest. And I'll tell you what. The wrestlers and the the promotions took that damn thing seriously. I think to this day they do. It's still quoted as who's number one every year and stuff like that. So I think that was the highlight of my my tenure there. And uh, I only left PWI because they moved. They moved in, uh, 92, 93, and they moved to rural Pennsylvania, and I had just bought property in the area. I couldn't go, you know, and this, you got to remember, guys, this was pre-internet, pre-cell phones, pre-everything. So, you know, if you had a job like that, you had to physically be there. So that ended my stint there, um, went on to other wrestling magazines. I worked for WCW for a while, and, um, with Sandy Krebs at Wrestling's main event magazine. But, um, no, I, I only look back at my PWI years with total fondness and, uh, I busted, I busted my butt, to be honest with you. But, you know, it was worth it. I learned a lot of good, I don't know, work ethic working for a company like that. And uh, it was a blast. But I, in short, I really lucked into the damn thing. If I hadn't seen that ad, I never would, would have worked for him.
1: Let's talk about PWI 500 for a second. That kind of interests me because I know for a long time Dan Murphy was uh, in charge of the 500. And he and I would talk about it when I would see him... Uh, at, like, cauliflower reunions because he was into working on that and talking about the list. Just the initial one, the first one. I remember the first one. I got that magazine. I have a copy of it still. I read the 500 every year. What was, like, the, the initial reaction? Because, like you said, you know, wrestlers, they took that seriously and still do. They would flip through to see where they're where they're listed. And the funny thing about it is, number one was obviously the spot you wanted, but then there were the guys that they were excited to be – 500? Because they got just as much attention because everybody wanted to know, okay, who's this dude who got 500?
2: Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what. I knew the thing was going to take off when I had a list, and we had this ancient, archaic computer system back then. I mean, it was like green type on a black screen. I forget what it was called. But it was this, you know, big big disk on a server, and it, it was like it was hard to stitch articles together, and when we stitched one of them together, these files, which aren't like files today, it was just, it wasn't even word, pro- I don't know what you'd call it, but in any event, we're stitching the thing together, and I think something happened that a few people in the letter G and a couple people in the letter H got erased or deleted or just lopped off somehow, and I think one of them was Terry Gordy or something like that, you know, and we oh. heard about it, we heard about it immediately. I mean, anybody who wasn't on the list would go, "Hey, how come I didn't make the list. I'm, I'm working my butt off in the NWO or whatever. And that's how we discovered. It It was such a monumental undertaking full of, of paper and stuff like that. So in f- the second year p- and the second year, people go, "Why did I go down 20 spots? Why am, I, why am I in the top 60 and not the top 40?" I'm like, "Oh my gosh, are they taking this seriously?" And I would explain to them exactly how we put it together and you know, why, why they rated the way they did. Um, and we rated them based on basically one loss based on our own regular ratings that were in the magazine all year. So, so to answer that question, I, th- I think the reaction from it after it came out was stunning. Absolutely stunning. I, I just, people took it seriously. And I think, like I said, I think they still do.
1: We I promoted a show in uh, California back 2015 I believe what year it was, and part of the gimmick of the match it was a title match, and the challenger came out and issued a challenge that he wanted a shot of the title because of his listing in the PWI 500. Like I gave him my copy of the magazine and he came out to the ring with it and pointed at us and ring. He was number <laughs> this and he should get a title shot against the champion tonight. Now the fans were like cheering for it and that's how we booked the match for that night was using the Pro Wrestling Illustrated 500 and you know the guy kept my magazine Uh, (laughs) I had to go buy another copy of it but you know and people were having him walk. He people were wanting to have him sign it he got you know he had me and the other promoter we signed it for him because he just had fun coming out with the you know I'm number I think it was like 200 and something but I deserve a shot at the title and the fans went for it because in their eyes hey he's in the PWI 500 that's pretty hot he should get a shot of the title so they were all for him on that title shot because of his ranking in the pwi 500
2: that's amazing oh my god somebody used it in an angle i i'm i am floored that's a i love it that's awesome <laughs> that's really good you know what? that's good booking right there i mean it's right there in black and white you know that's that's
1: brilliant i love it it worked it worked like i said he kept my magazine i had a sign it he, <laughs> he loved it you know and the fan- he was a local wrestler from the Oregon area. They didn't know who he was, but the fact that he was in that magazine, man, dude, in our small town of Eureka, California, that made him a legit number one contender because of the, the national magazines.
2: Well, one of the other things I did during my tenure there, and I forget it was if it was Inside Wrestling or The Wrestling, those titles, but we had a section every month called Introducing. And I, to this day, hear from wrestlers who go, you gave me my first national publicity. I'll always be grateful. Guys like Chris Michaels in the East and Broadway Sunny Blaze. And I, I believe we gave Sid Vicious his first publicity. And Rob Van Dam, too, when he was just known as Rob Stakowski. You know what I'm saying? Uh, people who... Some of the people went on to big things. Others didn't. I remember we did John Hawk, who later became JBL, of course. And it just... I was really happy to... Um, introduce people because i went to a lot of indie cards and i would go back to the office and go we really need to cover this guy or you we ought to take a look at that guy and usually when a wrestler's just first starting out you say i want to do an article a four-page article and you they go oh sure you know they it would be their first publicity in a lot of cases so i really enjoyed bringing young guys into the forefront who people may not have heard of before and you know, back in the day, I think, even into the early 90s, I think wrestling magazines still had a lot of clout in terms of uh, people seeing stuff that from other areas of the country that they couldn't see on TV. Now, if now if it's a wrestling organization, chances are you can see it somewhere. But in those days, it wasn't like that. And uh, helping get the word out of the young guys was always a blast for me. You know, it's it just, and, and like I say, um, I, I went to Memphis and saw young Sabu and young Rob Van Damme. I went back to the office raving about both of them so I feel really lucky because that was 91 and I could just tell both of them were going to be great guns they they had it you know uh, R- Rob I saw I saw an opening match I think in West Memphis Arkansas between Nightmare Danny Davis and Rob Stokowski who was Rob Van Dam and I walked backstage and I just blurted out that's the best opener I've ever seen and Eddie Marlin turns to me and goes yeah I think you're right <laughs> so that's how good Rob Van Dam was when he was a kid so um what can I tell you? I just it, it was fun working with the indies and the young guys because they you know they'd work with you. We'll put it that way.
1: See, that was the thing with me with the magazines. Um, I found them. I mean, I read you know WWF magazine because growing up in a small town, WWF you know TV uh, Saturday Night's main event was about the main thing we got on television uh, until late eighties when I started getting a ESPN on our cable system and I found other things. But I went to my local liquor store one time. Uh, when I was in high school, going in to get a soda, and I saw a wrestling, I'm like, well, what's this? Who's this guy? I'm like, oh, that's Roddy Piper. I know him. I've seen him on WWF TV. Well, what's mm-hmm. this magazine? And it was a copy of uh, Inside Wrestling. Roddy Piper was on the cover. I have a copy of that as well. It's the first wrestling magazine I ever bought. I bought it. I opened it up. I started looking through it, and I'm like, well, who are all these other guys? And, I mean, I hadn't really heard of, like, you know, and this is sad to say, I hadn't heard of Dusty Rhodes. I hadn't seen Ric Flair, because all I saw was WWF mid-'80s. So the magazines opened it up for me. I went back to that liquor store the next day with whatever allowance I had left, and that was back when they were like $1.50, 2 bucks a piece. Mm-hmm. I bought every magazine that was on the newsstand. I walked out with a stack of like eight magazines, uh, the PWI stuff, Inside Wrestling, along with the Napolitano mag stuff like that. I walked out with a stack of them. Mm-hmm. And that's how I found out, hey, I can do this. I, I love writing. I'm into journalism. That's what I was doing in high school. I can write about wrestling. Really? I want to do this. And that's kind of what sparked me, and it was those magazines, because that opened it up for me. I was like, well, who are these guys? And then later on, once I started watching the other stuff, and you'd see the introducing Rob Van Dam, that introduced me to the new guys. And it was a lot of it for, in my case, the magazines that you worked on were what opened up the doors for me, to where now I'm sitting here interviewing you about your work on those magazines that I went Mm -hmm. and bought, so... I think that's fascinating, you know. In my case, and for me, it's just look back at the history of all that and realize that what those magazines did. Yeah,
2: I mean, I, when I was younger, it was the same. I'm way older than both of you guys, but it was the same for me when I was a kid. I would take what, what little allowance money I had and go buy Wrestling World or Inside Wrestling or, you know, I could, because for a spell where I lived up in upstate New York, we didn't have any wrestling on TV at all for a while, so I was still learning about wrestling because I liked it. Through the magazines, even when we didn't have a show on locally. And I learned about, you know, the Sheik and Johnny Valentine and and then later on Ric Flair and, you know, guys that we couldn't see. But when they finally made their way to uh, cable TV, as it were, I knew who they were through the magazines. So I think that was the worth of the magazines. Plus, it was such fun as a kid. We had a newsstand that was in a diner like they had a magazine rack me and my best buddy Rick would have uh, lunch there. Sometimes we'd eat burgers and look at, you know, Greg, the hammer Valentine on the pages of these magazines and just talk about what he had done on TV and stuff like that. Those, those are times you can't replace. And that to me was the magic of the wrestling magazines back then, because you learned about stuff you couldn't see. And, uh, you know, the pictures, the bloody covers, all that stuff, you know, it was just such a great part of growing up. And, uh, well, I I read wrestling magazines into my adult years. Like when I got hired by PWI, I was already reading it, so it was like I never really gave them up. But now there's only one, <laughs> or maybe two, and that's it. So you know, I never thought we'd live in a world where records and magazines were passe.
1: I've actually found a couple uh, British magazines um, that I buy, uh, Inside the Ropes, and then there's one Wrestle right. Talk. I got yeah, those. Was, Digital downloads, of course. Digital downloads, of course, you know, because that's the way, that's how I get my Pro Wrestling Illustrated now, too, with digital download. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I still read the magazines. For me, it's kind of fun. Now, comparing it now, you're into, uh, you know, you have the outdated wrestling hour, and you're, you know, into the podcast world now. How do you compare the podcast scene to now, to the magazine scene back then? Because really, it's just another kind of updated form for people to get, Exposure. I mean, Glenn and I—we try to bring on some of the, you know, indie talent on here so they can actually get their names out. So in a way, you're kind of using the same thing. How do you compare the two?
2: Boy, it's—you know—that's a great question. And I'll tell you why. It's so similar. When I—I I never really stopped to think about that before, but now that you bring it up, it's so similar in that they're both dogfights. You know, when we did PWI and Inside Wrestling and all those other titles, there was all these other companies doing wrestling magazines too. And the podcast world is the same way. I figure, well, I'm going to do a nostalgia podcast. But there are like 75 other (laughs) nostalgia podcasts. And I think there's something like 600 wrestling podcasts or maybe more. So breaking through in a glut of of stuff like that, it's hard to do. And you better bring something to the table. You know, you just have to. You know, you can't be run-of-the-mill stuff. It's got to be at least a little different or take a different kind of attack and a little bit of originality in it. And I think that's why John Rizzi's is successful. I think this is why, you know, nobody in the top 20 of the podcast is going to break through past Jim Cornette and uh, um, a lot of the other ones. You know, Bruce Pritchard and guys, guys who are so tightly ingrained in the, in the industry that they have information that nobody else could provide. And that's why those podcasts are so great. You know, it's because they were there. They're, they've been part of it. And I think people love that stuff. And I, I think and rightfully so that the wrestlers podcast should be the top rated podcast because that's what I, who everybody wants to hear from. You know, the peripheral people are a whole different story. But I, I think that that's what makes it so daunting is that you've got a lot of competition and you're just struggling. And let's face it, not everybody has a lot of time out there, particularly in cities. Who has an hour to listen to a podcast? Well, as it turns out, you know, in a city like I live, New York, everybody's you know, on the subway or on a bus going to work, and you can pop a pair of earbuds in and listen to a podcast that way. And I, I didn't even think of that until somebody kind of reminded me of that fact. So in short, I, I think it's very similar. It's both, it's both a dogfight. There are so many voices and so many places to go for information now. And if you add the Internet to it, the 8,000 wrestling news websites there are now, I can't even name all of, them, all of them. There's just so many. So it's, I think it's a struggle to be heard, but once you are heard, it's very gratifying. And that's why the last seven, eight months have been magical for me because it's, I've, or I, I tell people, if I never get more successful than I am right now, I'm thrilled because it's doing well. Um, we've reached a lot of people, and um, the, the feedback I get is overwhelming. So, and I'm having a blast. I feel young doing it. I turned 65 in October, guys. So it's like, I am uh, very happy to be back in the game, so to
1: speak. Well, let me wish you an early happy birthday because I'll be 51 in October. So There you
2: go. Well,
1: I'm, the
0: pu- there. I'm, I'm the puppet 47, I guess.
2: <laughs> oh, you young punk. <laughs> oh i don't
0: feel like it today though after a day of work boy or
2: you know or or as the uh, staff announcer my show would go you young punk you know it's it's like oh yeah but and by the way that the intros on my shows is is a character called bob 20 minutes from now because <laughs> that's what i'm going to be about 20 minutes from now i am going to be in a deli somewhere screaming for soup you know and I, I, I get two reactions to the old man in the, in the beginning of the show. Number one, people love it, and want more of it, or number two, get it off, let's just get to the stuff. <laughs> so it's polarizing, but I've decided to stick with it because you know what? follow your muse. you know I, I like having a little bit of music on the show, a little bit of comedy on the show. Just Just make it light. I, I don't want to do anything heavy on the show. There's a thousand places you can get news, you know, you, you know I want to Bob- do something else.
0: You know, Bob, yours is probably the first pro wrestling podcast where I've ever heard anyone reference Dominic Troiano.
2: Oh yeah, you you mentioned Winnipeg before. I noticed. Yes, sir. Are you Canadian?
0: Uh, no no I live uh, in northwestern Minnesota I actually my I grew up in a small town that was about 30 miles from the Canadian Win- the Manitoba border so I grew up about 90 minutes from Winnipeg so I grew up around the Canadian culture the radio the television stations so I'm ba- I call myself a southern Manitoban because I have grown up with the, a lot of that influence goes even into the music I, I mean there's mm-hmm. so much great stuff and just you know hearing about Dominic Troiano, you know you mentioned it, and I'm like that's cool because I had just Interviewed uh, an author of the the book about his life, so it was kind of a fascinating link.
2: Yeah. Wow. Oh man. Mark Doble or or his brother.
0: Mark Doble. I'm friends with his brother too on on social media, but I got Mark on the line and. Uh, talking with him, I mean, there was just so many fascinating layers of Dominic's career because he was so great as a guitar player. But his biggest commercial success was doing the behind-the-scenes uh, music for television shows like Night Heat and other things. So right. where he found his financial gain was through that avenue. But boy, what a brilliant musician! I mean, his albums with the Guess Who, uh, the James Gang, his stuff he he did earlier on with uh, the the original Bush. And it was kind of funny to see that uh, they actually held the Canadian. And copyright of the group uh the Gab- so the gavin rosdale company a uh, group had to pay for a certain right to have their name out there in canada but what a fascinating guy
2: well he his quasi-progressive rock albums he made for Capitol records in the 70s and early 80s are the great masterpieces that nobody's ever heard i urge everybody they're they're on every streaming platform now type in the name dominic Triano find the albums and take a listen listen to him play, and you tell me if he's not the most wonderful guitarist nobody's ever heard. Mm -hmm. That's all I have to say. He's an incredible guitarist with an amazing technique. And I fell in love with him way back in the day, and I was shocked that he didn't uh, get the success that I think he deserved as a solo artist. I thought his solo album was the best stuff he ever did. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, that's the way it works sometimes.
0: Yeah, it's crazy how that, you know, because, again, a couple of other artists, guitar players, too, that didn't quite completely explode into the scene nationally through the years. Uh, we're talking about uh, Rory Gallagher and Randy California of, of mm-hmm. Spirit. Sure.
2: Oh, there's a there's a, there's a bunch of them. oh Rory Rory Gallagher, good gravy. Tommy Bolin, you know, uh. there's there's a million of them from that period of rock and blues that should have been bigger than they were. Um, what can I say? Uh, radio is very exclusion uh, exclusion. Yeah, I have a podcast. Uh, <laughs> radio can be very rigid and not not play everybody's records. It's just the way it was back then. It was super tough to get airplay if you didn't fit into some kind of a hole they could put you in. Mm-hmm. And the artists who were more creative and that kind of... Like Dominic Trano would have progressive rock on his albums, but he'd also have a disco song on the same record. Seriously. Yeah, and, yeah. And he even charted with a disco record. So it was like... If you couldn't pitch it home, they did the Programmers wouldn't know what to do with you. <laughs> and I, I think a lot of a lot of artists are like that. Those are the ones that follow their muse and make great original music that not enough people hear. So you know, it's 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 a minor tragedy, but you know, at least the music still lives on. And you can you can do what you and I are doing right now and just say, hey, go go listen to this because it's great.
0: Oh my God! I could have so many different reference points for so many different guitar players that never really completely got their due. Uh, but you know, let's talk a little bit, about more about you know one of the things that fascinated me when I was a kid because I, I I like Mike. I collected the magazines, and in fact, I have a, a brother who's a few years younger than me, who I think has every magazine that was put out in the nineteen wrestling magazine that was put out in the nineteen eighties. That he's amassed this collection. It's it, it, it's 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 Daunting to even want to pull out a year to look at them, but I, w- I remember a time, and I remember being a paid customer to this. It was kind of around the time when 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 kayfabe was you know the the genie was out of the bottle, and you know dirt sheets were starting to get some prominence, but P- Pro Wrestling Illustrated kind of. Dip the toe into the market a little bit with the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Weekly, and you guys done that for a while. I remember picking those up and thinking they were quite interesting for you know a guy who was barely you know I was a kid you know so the k was still a little bit of a magic in there. But what was the deal with the pro the PWI Weekly and going that bold? Because I know with the magazines you know some of the news would be a few months behind, but it was just cool to read the articles. But that move into to weekly territory for a while was was very uh, was was a, was a risk, I mean, because when you think about it, I mean, it was a not-ready-for-prime-time sort of thing because when you had the dirt sheets, you go from PWI having this monthly thing. What was the, the, the thinking and the rationale behind that?
2: The newsletters were kicking butt, and I think somebody determined that they were... We never looked at the newsletters as competition to the print magazines. We really didn't, but by the same token... Somebody in our business department said, if, if XX the number of people read these newsletters, why don't we do one too? Mm-hmm. And we could put it out every week. So on top of the 18,000 other gazillion <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> of titles that we had, because we had a boatload of titles London Publishing did. Wrestling, Inside Wrestling, The Wrestler, PWI, PWI Weekly, um, Sports Review Wrestling, Ben Strong Wrestling, just go down the list. If you look at the history of London Publishing, and as our sales failed or were starting to falter, they would add more product. We would add different magazine titles. So someday somebody came up with the concept of doing this weekly. But okay, what are we gonna do? Well, if you remember it was like this giant broadsheet that you would open up. Yep. And uh in the middle was wrestling results from all over the country, a trivia section where it's you know, ten questions of trivia, true or false and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there'd be a little editorial on that page. But the outside and back of the thing when you refolded it was pretty much hard news. Yeah. And this was an era where there was really hard news. The steroid scandal. Um, there's some controversy with Jake the Snake Roberts, I remember. There was all kinds of things going on. And it was unlike our regular magazines in that I think Dave Rosenbaum, who a uh, history is a news writer, um, wrote most of the lead stories. And, um, you know, we and our staff had tons of guys on it who worked for – real news publications. I worked in real news. Dave worked uh, for, uh, we had guys in the boxing department that worked for Newsday and, you know, mm-hmm. and other newspapers. So we were able to put our journalist hats back on and really cover the important hard news of the day on the on the covers of those. I, I kind of liked the way it came out. I thought it was a fun yeah. thing. I don't know if it ever really caught on and that's why I I I don't know if we did it longer than two years. I'm pretty sure we didn't.
0: I'm thinking it's about two years was probably yeah. where, it, where it topped out. Uh, as Yeah, far. and
2: and I guess they decided that the effort because you know what we would take with all that other work we were doing. I was spending most of a Monday helping putting that thing together, <laughs> so they lopped that on top of our other you know work assignments, and it was real. We were putting out at least two magazines a week at one point plus that thing, mm-hmm. so it was like it was it was a lot of work, it's but. A- but I do think it was pretty good quality, and I, you know, we had room for a lot of match results, and people love results. I, I you know, oh, yeah. I used to buy magazines when I was a kid. What was it? Uh, the ring wrestling used to have twenty pages of agate with just results in them. I love results and ratings. So I think as long as we included those things, uh, we'd find a readership. But I don't know. I don't know if we promoted it anywhere outside our own magazines, and that probably hurt its chances for overall success. And plus, you know what? By that point, everybody knew Dave Meltzer, excuse me, Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller and the others that were out there. And it was hard, it was hard to break it on their territory in any way. And we couldn't anyway because it wasn't the same style of thing that they did. I mean, again, to have such a steady, a strong office
0: presence. So you, you guys had some, there was a murderous row of great writers at the time, too. What was oh, that gosh. report like working with like a Craig Peters, a Stu Sachs, and uh, Bill After, You mentioned Dave Rosenblum, who did some great work. Mm-hmm. And also a guy that kind of came and went, was a bit of a character in his own right. He was kind of the second coming of Dan Shockett, Eddie Elner. Oh,
2: well, Eddie Elner, yeah. Eddie, was, Eddie. I'll tell you one thing about Eddie Elner. Eddie Elner was Eddie Elner. He that wasn't a name, it wasn't a made up character, and his personality was exactly the guy you read he was and dan Shockett too God rest his soul I, I just i just um it was a cast of characters in that place. let me tell you um Bill after was the nicest, funniest, wackiest guy you'd ever meet. We had no off button, very funny, always you know gregarious mm-hmm. and Quick with jokes and you know going around the office acting a fool he, he was really a funny guy uh stu Sachs was all business he was the publisher at that point um good guy craig peters and i remain good friends he's been on my show three times at this point um and after came on the show once when i ran into him yeah uh, um and we had uh annie rodriguez who preceded me he, he was in my entire tenure and dave rosenberg great writer i think in, in terms of straight writing I think Dave was superb. I mean, he, he could write. And he went on to write books about sports and stuff like that and had a really good career on his own. So, you know, the proof's in the pudding. And we had a guy named Chris Bernuka late while I was there. And Gersh Kuntzman, who, who went on to write for the Daily News and New York Post. And brought, he brought a Broadway show at one point. I mean, it's just, we were surrounded by talent. And late, dig this, late in my tenure there, we had Joey Styles, Yeah, yeah. The Joey Styles intern for us. And he had a column, and he was a heel columnist. And we also had Kostya Kennedy, who went on to become one of the top sports writers in the world. He wrote the book about, um, you know, I think a recent book about Muhammad Ali and stuff like that. Incredible writer. I don't know how, just incredible. And we also had a photographer named Al Bello, who is now a multi-winning uh, sports photographer for Getty Images. So we had talent there. It was dripping out the walls, man. I, 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 was, probably, I was probably the worst guy there. I'm <laughs> telling you. We had so much talent in that office. that ran in and out of there. But the real treat of the office, you never knew who was going to show up. Hey, here comes Dominic Danucci. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Oh, here comes Johnny Rods. Here comes Eddie Gilbert and Missy Hyatt. Here comes Mill Mascaris. All coming oh. just to visit.
0: Oh man, that is so cool!
2: Because Bill there was so tight with all these people, they would come just for a visit. And they'd all go out to lunch. Sometimes oh. I go out. To, I went out to lunch once with Carrie Von Eric. Huh. So, so it's like you never knew who was going to wander in the place. Young Tommy Dreamer used to pop up every so often. It was a blast. I don't oh. know what to say other than it's a wrestling fan's dream. It really was.
0: Oh, my God. And you, you mentioned some of these names, too. I mean, some, we, a lot of us in younger remember from the ECW. But, mm-hmm. you know, Eddie Gilbert. I mean, talk about – I, when I think about Eddie Gilbert, I mean, I think about some of the stuff he's done, in the, you know, with, with UWF and WA and so forth. But the stuff he did out east – was you know in the early days of eastern Ch- i mean and even right. the tri-state wrestling with joel goodhart oh right yeah. i mean geez, you guys really had a great coverage on that stuff because joel goodhart was was basically the kind of, one of the guys that helped kind of you could say to a degree some of the nwf like the dc drakes of the world were laying down the framework of what became eastern championship wrestling into extreme championship wrestling and of course during that ecw transition with with todd gordon's name came out there i mean the Joel Goodhart shows were legendary. They didn't necessarily, uh, you know, get in the black, but there was so much talent on those shows. And to read about in those three uh, series of matches between Eddie and and Mick Foley, aka Cactus Jack. I mean, the coverage on those were so cool. I mean, a guy sitting up here in AWA country when the company was on life support, I was still watching the show, but having an outlet and seeing, that was what always struck me good, it was, was some of those East Coast talents and, and Joel Goodhart and that tri-state wrestling uh, and, and the shows that he put on really kind of opened my eyes to a lot of that stuff. It was a great way to get the palate right away cleansed.
2: Joel Goodhart and later Todd Gordon did things that other promoters in the East would not do. They gave, they listened to the fans and gave them exactly what they were looking for. When the WWF went all homogenized with Duke the Dumpster and Matilda mm-hmm. the Bulldog and uh, the Red Rooster, here, co- here comes Joe Goodhart with a last blood battle royal. Not a first blood, a last blood. Like the only guy not to bleed won the battle royal. <laughs> here he comes with uh, Japanese stars. Here he comes with Owen Hart. Here he comes with Terry Funk versus Jerry Lawler. All, and, you know, wrestling magazines were still around. So they were feeding the fans oh. what they thought the fans were dreaming about seeing. They were dream matches. Abdullah the Butcher versus the Sheik. Come on now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you weren't going to get that anywhere else but those guys. And, you know, Todd took up, you know, uh, when and Joel disappeared and, and his, you know, Joel disappeared when he was going to promote a Buddy Landell versus Buddy Rogers match. Yes. And it never came off. I remember
0: so, the hype for that, too. I mean, it amazed me that, you know, the buddy was going to get into the ring. And, of course, uh, fate had other plans.
2: Right. Well, you know, I, I had Joel, uh, excuse me, I had, I had Todd Gordon on the show recently. And, <sighs> I, was, and I was very thankful that I was the first person he interviewed before his book came out. And his mm-hmm. book is, like, number one everywhere. But he, he, As we talked, I found out that, um, you know, a few of the wrestlers came to him and said, can you get a wrestling license? We want to we keep going. We want to keep doing this. And they were the local guys, you know. But sure. Todd had a vision. Todd said, "I want to bring re- Memphis style wrestling to the East Coast," and the rest is history. Because you know what? that's exactly what he did. <laughs> if you think about it, the Lawler days with the you know the concession stand brawls and the mud matches and the you know the gimmick matches that they did in Memphis, it all came into, into ECW. And not to mention just some of the hardest hitting action you'd ever watch anywhere. Mm-hmm. And you had you had young guys eager to, to go through with it to do it. Like the Tommy Dreamers and the Sabus and the Robin Dams and Taz especially, you know. These guys were just chomping at the bit to make a name for themselves. And that's what made it so good. Everybody was hungry. And you remember the Sandman when he was a surfer. Oh, gosh. Sandman was one of my best buddies there. (laughs) I remember running into him when I worked for WCW magazine. and He had just got signed with WCW. He says, Bob, what are you doing here? I said, well, I work for WCW, He says, you're kidding. We hadn't seen each other in like five years or something sure. like that. So yeah, he was one of the originals. In fact, for Tri-State, somewhere, I think it was in Delaware or something, I saw a match between Sandman and J.T. Smith. And I'm not mistaken, and I don't think I am, it was their, both of their first matches ever. Huh. And it brought the house down in a show that had Jerry Lawler on it. Huh. So That's, they, you know, you could just smell the, you know, you could smell the bread cooking in Philadelphia. You could smell something was going to happen there. That's so why I kept coming back to the office and saying, "We got to cover this. We got to cover this." You know, because it was like, like when I would go to a high school show or some indie promoter in Long Island. I would come back to the office and we barely touched it because you knew it wasn't. It was a thrown together thing with a couple of old stars and a bunch of local guys, and it was. You know, quasi-semi-pro. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That yeah, is not really the case in Philadelphia. It. Philadelphia in the 90s was magic. It really was. It was magic, man. I can't even tell you how exciting that was. And I got to call their first few matches on yes. television. I got to be on WWE Network when somebody found some matches I did, <laughs> right, doing play-by-play, and I'm like, I never heard it when it was new. <laughs> <laughs> So somebody dug this stuff and threw it on the WWE network. I'm like, "Oh my god, I can't believe it." You know, so you know, it's 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 just incredible. The whole thing was just incredible.
0: Well, that's the whole thing, too, about, you know, you say they found your stuff and they put it on the network. I, I, I always praise the audiovisual hoarders out there who have not only helped to make the WWE Network a success, but also you go to YouTube and you can watch all the stuff you read about in the PWIs in the late 80s and 80s, 90s. Oh. It's amazing to, how much we have just at a click. And it clicks. You know, all we have to do is click it.
2: Well, you know, one of my guests was Dave Dynasty who threw on the entire link of that he could find of the World Wrestling Association out of Indianapolis. Yes. And then you've got guys like Crispy Lettuce, who was Armstrong Alley on YouTube, who has stuff dude, I was in the business, I never heard of some of these <laughs> federations. Oh, like no, Dominic DeNucci's Federation from Philadelphia in nineteen ninety two. I never heard of that stuff. <laughs> but there it is, live and in color. I, I'm flabbergasted. And they're not making much money doing this. They're doing no. it for the love of it, you know? Oh, that's my favorite thing is to scour YouTube and see what I can come up with. Oh, yeah. I and was, it's you know what? You know what? Before this show, I, I was wasting a little time here at home, and I was in my other room watching five-star wrestling from Armstrong Alley. Five-star. I don't even know the state this damn thing was on in the <laughs> 80s, early 90s, but I'm watching Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant, and uh, guys like that just before we started this. So it's like... That's cool because you never saw it before. There, there are ungodly numbers of hours of old wrestling that nobody ever saw. It, so, in a way, now thanks to these guys like you mentioned, it's like the territories are back.
0: Oh, it I. It feels lo- like
2: the territories are back, right?
0: I love it because I mean, when I was going in and, and going back and watching, even. Mid early early to mid 80s AWA and I'd have I'd have a memory you know and I hadn't seen it in years and years and now that I'm able to find this stuff and it's like it's connecting it's like I'm I'm, I'm just this kid again and it's mm-hmm. it's it's a nice feeling and I also if anything it also could help the worker the potential worker who wants to go beyond just the I want to you know get all my spots in the pro wrestler who studies the game has such a great bunch of stuff at their feet They they cannot find you know how could they not find anything that will inspire them or if they decided to be some you know uh, an old wrestling character they maybe time forgotten that, that a, a pers- aspiring wrestler could pick up on the influence is so there and that's another great aspect too i mean i mean it, it definitely is, is 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 something i appreciate every day having
2: well you mentioned joyce Faustian's book about the awa yeah, That book is the closest vibe I've gotten to buying a wrestling magazine since I was 25 years old. You know what I'm saying? It's like a wrestling magazine. She made a wrestling magazine in that book with color mm-hmm. and black and white photos that nobody has ever seen before. None yes. of them. Yes. None of them. How great is that book? You, you, hit, oh. you hit the nail in the head with that one. That, that one just knocks me out. It really does.
0: Oh man, just and the way her memory is so sharp too, you know, and it's, it's so fun because she also talks about, you know, some of the friends that she made, uh, who were, you know, in and out of the ring as well, driving Nick Bockwinkle and other wrestlers, uh, back and forth from the airports, things like that, making these just real, I mean, but became genuine connections.
2: Yeah. You know what? You gotta be a, you gotta be kind of cool to ingratiate yourself like that. And I think Joyce was a sensible, if that makes any sense. I think they appreciated her for her steadiness, her honesty. You know what I mean? She wasn't, mm-hmm. she wasn't there to put herself over or ingratiate herself into the show in any way. And I think no. that the fact that she simply wanted to come and take some pictures, she didn't even get ringside passes. She got, like, second, first and second row passes. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that she was upfront and honest about what she was doing and who she was I mean, she got to drive Bobby Heenan around. Can you imagine? (laughs) Oh, I could not. No. Just the
0: the stuff that that he can roll off. I mean, that was a natural stand-up comedian.
2: Oh, gosh. I I met him on three different occasions. One time, I was with WCW Magazine, and Colin Bowman and I presented him with the uh, magazine's Wrestler of the Year Award, the actual award. I handed it to him. He goes... He goes, oh, I know just where I'm going to put this. Right next to the Charmin next to my toilet. And you <laughs> fall on the floor laughing. He just, he had a line for every occasion. He was uh. one of the most brilliant people. And you know what? Joyce said, and this is the key to his humor, I think. Joyce said he didn't really like, he was scared of some fans. He's scared of people. He didn't want mm-hmm. to hang out with most. He he had a guard up. You know, you know why? Because heels in his day were the well, fans it would like
0: attack a you different game yeah, I mean, yeah you had, the to, fans you had would, to be worried
2: yeah so he 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 had a healthy respect for the danger he could put himself in just by being a heel so he was very very careful and so the fact that he sidled up to joyce and people like that you know he you pick and choose who you hang with if you want to stay safe and i think that's testament to how i don't know normal she was i think that's the yeah. word you I mean, know? she
0: could go hang out with Bobby and, 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 of course, Sergeant Slaughter, Bob Remus. And then she has this longtime correspondence with Lord Al Hayes.
2: Right. Oh, what a great book. I, You know, and Baron Von Rashkin. Yeah. And all these other people that are in the book. It's it's a must read. And she's selling it on her own. She's got to get on Amazon and all that. I'm telling you, this book could be in the top 20 of wrestling books. I, I have no question in my mind it should be a bestseller. And I hope she makes it. I hope she sells 50,000 of these things because it's it's made me the book of this year so far as far as I'm concerned it's great and the writing is pretty good isn't it yeah yeah but
0: again it just it, she's such a nat. it just so natural so real that's the whole thing you that's know it. you know and it just it just brings back your it almost it brings back your own sort of feelings about what makes you what keeps you, uh, you know, in love with this pro wrestling business when sometimes it can take you they can go a little bit off the rails, but it always going back to those old days and remembering and seeing pictures and getting reminders like that and to discover more of these undiscovered photos of her collection. I mean, again, you, like you said, not too many people probably saw these pictures. And now we're able to kind of get new life into some of these classic acts.
2: Yeah. And you know what? I think Joyce's success with her book is similar to the success I'm having now in that both Joyce and I, for the longest time, put our wrestling past in a drawer and moved on to other things and forgot Mm -hmm. about it. Not forgot about it, just didn't pursue it for a long time. But when you do start to pursue it again, like when I interview people like her, and we, we said this to each other. It feels like the, the years drip off of you and you're 19, 20 years old again. You're going to your first card or, or, you know what I'm saying? Or yeah. you're talking to your first wrestler you ever met or any of this other type of stuff. And if you're sincere about your passion and love for that stuff, it will be reflected in your work. And I think with her book and my show, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Anybody who listens to my show can tell I'm real excited about the stuff I saw in the 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, it, It's just you can't fake it you know you you can you can spout off all the match result t- you know that you want unless you have a deep-seated respect and passion for what you're watching it ain't the same thing no you know no. and I think I think that, I think you you hit on something there I think that if you're sincere about your actual fondness for your subject matter it means a lot and that's Joyce hmm well Joyce.
0: it looks It looks like we're all the the timekeepers giving me the old stink eye, which means we've won (sighs) Broadway with you, Bob.
2: Oh, no wonder I'm so tired.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, we're going to have to have you back uh, here in a few months uh, when the when when the when the weather turns and we get to winter.
2: Here's the invitation for both of you: come on to my podcast. Let's hype your show. Sure, I'm serious. This I is didn't. an open invitation for both of you to come on the outdated Wrestling Hour, and there will be soup. Oh, so, thank so, God! Thank so God! So, if if you come on, I can promise you. Uh, I think right now we have bean with bacon, and chicken with stars. So uh. I'll take the
0: chicken with the stars. <laughs> there you I'll put go. The, yeah, I'll bring my bring my mug. Even we'll make yeah. it good.
2: Because you know what, like I said, um, maybe people need to find out about your show. Anybody from anywhere can listen to your show, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. We, we, I mean, we, we have the radio station stuff, and then I have the archive saved on, on SoundCloud. We haven't put forth any full-court full press on putting things out, but we have the, the content there. We just need to find plug into an algorithm.
2: There you go. Well, you know, I'll help spread the word, and uh, let's see what we can do for you. So uh, I expect both of you on my show post-haste.
0: Bob Smith, best algorithm ever. For Bob Smith and the Grizzled Vet Mike McCurdy, I'm Glenn Broggett. You have been listening to Rasslin' Memories.